my name is Eric, and I welcome you to our Black Gay Diaspora podcast, where we, as LGBTQ plus citizens, come together to inspire and educate each other on who we are and our respective countries and professions. Through topics and guest interviews, our Black Gay Diaspora podcast celebrates individuals making a difference. Loving who we love is not a choice. Being who we're meant to be can be. We are here. You are welcome. We are community. Hi, my name is Eric, your host of our Black Gay Diaspora podcast. Where to begin? <laughs> when introducing someone like British activist Mark Thompson, I discovered Mark over two years ago when other UK guests who mentioned his name and how he celebrates Black British queer communities said I should reach out to him. So I thank British queer writer Troy Fair. Clough, thank you for connecting us. <laughs> Incorporating his own experiences, Mark is one of Britain's leading HIV and Black queer men's health campaigners. With over 30 years of activism, he's been featured in a myriad of print publications and other media, and he's been interviewed by various organizations. One of the more recent projects he's been included in is in Black queer artist and filmmaker Topher Campbell's 2022 documentary, Black Queer Britain which debuted on the 1st of June, 2022, on Channel 5's streaming platform, My5. Today, Mark is a director of The Love Tank, which is, quote, a not-for-profit community interest that promotes health and well-being of underserved communities, end quote. But throughout his career, he's co-founded other organizations like Blackout UK, Prepster, and Black and Gay back in the day. I love that title. <laughs> which is a photo archive of Black LGBTQIA Life in Britain from the 1970s to the early 2000s. It's also a podcast that he co-hosts with journalist Jason Okundaye. I am excited for my first in-person interview, and I thank Mark for his patience with all the setup. And I look forward to learning more about your journey and who you are as a Black queer citizen. Hey, Mark, and welcome. How are you? Hey, Eric. It's lovely to meet you. I'm very, very well, thanks. It's a bit chilly and cold in this December day, but yeah, pretty good. Thank you for welcoming me to Brixton. We are recording on a Tuesday just to kind of settle us into things. How are you? I'm pretty good. Yeah, it's December, my favorite time of the year. So, you know, I'm okay. Life is good. No big complaints. Just got through World AIDS Day last week, which is always a big challenge in lots and lots of ways for me. Uh, but yeah, generally ticking on quite nicely. What was your role with this year's World AIDS Day? I've taken a bit of a step back from World AIDS Day over the years. I used to be really heavily involved in bucket shaking, so, you know, raising money or doing events or speaking or doing, you know, public speaking and raising awareness generally. Over the past couple of years, I see there's a lot of noise around World AIDS Day. And as somebody that does the work 365 days of a year, it's a little bit like, Christmas for Santa. I read a great quote last week from another positive man in the States that said, World AIDS Day for me is like Halloween for a drag queen. But I'm in drag for the rest of the year. So this year I did a couple of interviews, put out a couple of articles and uh, just gone with my day, to be honest. So it sounds like you were enjoying the experience more as a spectator this year? I'm not even sure if I'd use the word enjoy. I sit on the side and I observe what is going on and I observe 
all of the noise that happens around World AIDS Day, that we get a lot of press, which is great. But I'm also challenged by the fact that it's used by lots of people purely as a fundraising activity, as opposed to raising awareness, but also a moment of remembrance for those that we have lost and for those people that still live with HIV and those people who may struggle with their HIV as well. Okay. You mentioned December is your favorite month. Why is that? It's autumn, winter, it's Christmas, it's cuffing season. You have candles and nice lights and I get to spend time with family and just be warm and cozy in the house. It's just nice. I know you also recently took part in the uh, annual Red Run London 510K charity run. You were raising funds for Prepster. Mm -hmm. Did you participate as an actual runner or walker? Yeah, yeah. I participate every year. This year for Team Prepster, we had a team of about 35, 40 runners and walkers who kind of give their time and their energy and they raise funds to help us do our work. We're a not-for-profit company. Prepster is a project of the Love Tank. So we rely on donations, we rely on funding to come through. So it was a really, really great day for us to raise awareness about who we are as a charity organisation, but then to get some money in the bank to continue doing the work that's really important and really needed. Did you meet your goal for the year? We exceeded our goal. Okay. We exceeded our goal, yeah. And we're really, really proud because we know that times are tight. People don't have money. So when they do give, it's incredibly generous. And we make a point of letting people know that the money that we raise at Prepster goes directly to work. It's not for overheads. It's not for staff salaries. It will go on to project work for communities who are most marginalised. And I think we're really proud of that, you know, because lots of people do fundraising. And, you know, we all need to make a living, but we're really clear that if you're giving us your money, that it will go onto the things that you expect it to go onto. Okay, so you're very open about funds and all that stuff. Absolutely. You're the co-founder of Prepster. Can you share with us what exactly the organisation is? So Prepster is a project, which is part of the Love Tank which is the bigger company. And Prepster started in 2015 by myself, my business partner, Will Nutland, and my creative director, Richard Kawaji, and an academic called Charlie Witzel. And we got together in 2015 because we realised that there was a lot of chatter happening in the communities that we worked in. Mm-hmm. got background in health promotion myself. And we were seeing that there were lots of gay men, particularly at that time, that had questions about PrEP. We had doctors who were friends of ours that worked in sexual health that were going, we're getting lots of men coming in, asking about this drug. It's not available in the UK. We can't really give them information about it. We know that you guys have your finger on the pulse, that you're part of the community. Can you put some information there? So we decided to create a website, which would do two things. One, it would educate people who would benefit from PrEP about what PrEP was, because there was so much misinformation out there. Mm-hmm. Secondly, we're activists so at our core, so we wanted to agitate for PrEP. We wanted to make sure the people who can make the decisions about PrEP were making the right decisions. But what we also wanted to do thirdly was to motivate and energise our communities to agitate, to ask for PrEP, to push for PrEP with their local politicians, with their healthcare providers, because we believe that activism and good healthcare can come from within. 
Mm. And so we're always about building and generating a, a group of activists. And so we started that in 2015. We all worked and our intention was to run for six months and we would pack up and we'd go about our business. And here we are eight years later with the love tank and preps to being one small slice of the pie that we, that we run. When did PrEP become available in the UK? PrEP became available in the UK, I always get this wrong, and I'm going to say 2020, and that's when it became available on the NHS. PrEP friends shoot me for not getting it right. Were there reasons given why it took longer to come here to the UK? Yeah, I mean, it had a lot to do with cost. The drugs then were provided by the pharmaceutical company. They were incredibly expensive. (laughs) Um, The NHS doesn't have a lot of money. Our sexual health services don't have a lot of money because of the huge cuts. So there was a lot of financial argument about providing it, right? So it's going to cost money. That was first of all. Secondly, there was a political argument, some homophobia in there. Should we be given a preventative drug that costs money when there are other options for people, i.e. condoms? But we knew as activists, as health providers, many people who weren't activists, clinicians, knew that it was a highly effective tool and it worked. We've been using condoms for 30 years, but we were continuing to see HIV rates go up and it hit the peak in 2014, where we hit our highest rates of HIV in this country ever. So there was a really strong argument against who should pay for PrEP in this country. Should it be the National Health Service? Should it be local authorities? Local authorities are saying it's somebody's responsibility. So there was a long battle. We went to court with the NHS and we won. And, you know, eventually PrEP was then made available for free on the National Health Service. Do you have any data for today, like how many people are on PrEP or since, since you started to promote the usage of it? I mean, I don't know the exact number, mm-hmm. but we know that there is a really, really high uptake of PrEP amongst gay men in England, which is fantastic news. And we've seen the impact of that in the significant and consistent fall in new HIV diagnosis over the past seven years since PrEP becomes available. <laughs> So we know there's been a huge uptake in PrEP, which is fantastic. What we haven't seen are a similar uptake in other communities who are at risk of HIV. Black African women is the second largest group to be impacted by HIV in this country. And we're not seeing a similar uptake in PrEP in those women. We're also not seeing less of an uptake in gay and bisexual men whose first language isn't English, who might be migrants, who might be younger men. There was also a slower uptake in PrEP, which I think is really pertinent to our conversation, in black queer men as well. You know, we took a little longer to get onto the PrEP train in our communities, but that has shifted over the year. But that has a lot to do with access. Now, I know like cities like London, Birmingham, Manchester, three of the major cities in the country, people can contact you if they live outside of these communities to gain information also? We are a national, international organisation. I mean, I think that's one of the things we're really proud of is that, you know, we have been able to work across the country, you know, so we do have people reaching out to us from all over the country. I mean, there was an incident recently where people in Manchester were struggling to get PrEP in their local clinics just because of access issues, right? And we had lots of people contacting us at PrEPs to say, can you do something about it? And we're London-based, but we were able to use our influence to reach into clinics. And I think because 
we've created a movement that people trust in the community, but also in government and in the NHS that we're listened to. And internationally, we're really, really well known because we have been radical. We have had the community at the heart of what we do. So we've had contacts from, you know, Nigeria, from Kenya, from Middle Eastern countries, from across the US, from Latin America, from the Caribbean. People have reached out to us, you know, can you help us navigate the prep landscape, mm. um, individuals and organisations? Oh, that's great to hear. Mm. So you mentioned the Lab Tank, which Prepster is a subsidiary of? Yeah, Prepster is a project of the Love Tank. Okay. So the Love Tank is a not-for-profit community interest company. As you said in the intro, you know, we, we have a really clear aim. And I, I kind of break it down as we're here to make the lives of queer and marginalised communities better. And we do that through health promotion, advocacy, lobbying, research. And what is amazing and unique about our company is that the community is the company and the company is the community. So everybody who works for us is queer, trans or binary, we're people of colour, we have disabilities, we're migrants, some of us are really young, some of us are in our 50s. So when I look around my team, I can see that we represent many of the people that we set out to serve. I like the name, the love tank. What's the origins of it? Funny story. It was originally called the love bank because we were about putting money back into the community. We were told by the powers that be that we couldn't call a company a bank unless you're a bank. So we renamed it the love tank. And we kind of have our, our subheading as we're refueling the community. We looked at our logo recently and somebody said, to me and Will, my business partner, do you know that's like a petrol can? Are you guys burning down and torching the system? And I was like, yeah, kind of. <laughs> but then when I re-looked at it, I looked at it as a watering can. Okay. And what we're doing is we're, we're sowing seeds and we're nurturing the communities that we serve. So the love tank is about love and it is about trying to fill the world that we occupy. And our work is informed by love, love for our communities, love for the people that we serve. You know, that kind of ties into, I came across an interview you did with Attitude Magazine in June 2021. You're candid about your life growing up in Brixton, coming out as a teen, and also being HIV positive. In relation to coming out as a teen, was that something that was common during that time in, in the UK? Because when I hear that story, it's like, wow. As far as I'm aware, no, it wasn't, it wasn't very common. I came out in 1985 and I was 16. I didn't go to gay groups. I, I kind of knew gay youth groups existed, but they weren't something I went to. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know anybody my age when I came out. And I don't think I really met people who were my age until a couple of years later when I was in my, in my late teens. And even those men who'd come out had come out to other gay friends, but not necessarily to family. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying I was unique or special, but kind of unusual in some ways. But I was able to come out because I had a kind of quite progressive, quite liberal mum. Jamaican woman, absolutely, but brought up here and very British in lots of ways and lots of her attitudes. So it made it easier for me to come out to my family when I did. But it was a really difficult time to come out as a gay man in, in the 80s, whatever age you were. Um, so to be a teen to do that was, yeah, quite, quite unusual. 
So that means you were also like open at school? No, I left school. I left school probably a month. I finished my exams. I wanted to get out of school as soon as I could to go to college. Not college like you'd have in the States, but a further education college, which is like the last two years of high school. And I wanted to get out because, not just because of my sexuality, I wasn't that aware of the trouble that that might bring for me. But I was um, a curious kid. I was a cultured kid. I liked fashion. I liked music. I liked being out in the world, which is obviously really related to my queerness. But the school I went to was a really rough working class comprehensive school in a rough part of London and I didn't want to really be around those boys I just didn't want I wanted to be with cool kids mm-hmm. and so I found a really good college which was called Kingsway Princeton it had Princeton in the title so I was like well that's got to be good right because it's <laughs> Princeton and I went there to study social work and film so I came out when I got to college because I found a group of friends who were like-minded and were kind of freaks in their own way so I found my tribe when I got to college and that helped me to come out. This is my second time properly in Brixton. I was here a few years ago. I know like the history of Brixton in relation to Black communities. What was it like during that time? Yeah, you know, Brixton has always been home to me, right? And I think that's a really important thing because I was born here. I was raised here. I, I probably lived maybe four or five years outside of Brixton when I was in my really early teens. But it was a vibrant, exciting, safe space. And I emphasise the safe because Brixton has a really, really bad, or had a really bad reputation for crime, for violence, for poverty. It had all of those things. But being part of the community as an African Caribbean that lived here, I knew these streets. You know, my uncles roamed up and down these streets. My dad lived down there, you know. So I was safe. People knew me. People knew my family. So there was that. The market was down the road, so it had all the food stuffs, the hair stuff, all the products that were familiar to us. Yeah. And growing up here and coming out here as a teen, I was able to find other black gay people in Brixton, the occasional pub, which were frequented by other black gay men. Okay. You share about um, discovering that you were HIV positive mm-hmm. at a very young age, but you were public about it. What sparked you being public about that? I wasn't public for a really long time. I only went really public in terms of announcing it in 2013, 2014. Prior to that, people knew. When I was diagnosed, I told a couple of friends and people being people, they told people. So there was always a rumour that I was positive, but very often it hadn't come from my own mouth. So people knew, but they didn't really know. I only told people I was dating, but I never made an announcement. I never went to work and and said it. What pushed me to really go public were two things. I mean, I'd worked in HIV for a really long time. And in 2012, I took up a job at an organisation called Positively UK, where I ran a national peer mentoring programme for positive people. It was the first in the country. And my job was to recruit and train other people living with HIV. So... I'm doing this training and I'm telling people, you know, to embrace your status, mentor other people. And I was still holding back a bit. So that made me start to think I'm this role model in this room for these people and they're seeing somebody live well. Why am I so scared in the world? Because HIV is not my problem. 
And then the second thing that really pushed me is I got involved in the project called Through Positive Eyes, which was around teaching positive people to use cameras to document our lives. And it was a global project. Uh, There's about 12 of us in London. And I made a beautiful short film with my own camera. I took pictures and I really led into my artistic side. And I was like, this is amazing. I'd gone to college to study film and I put it on the back burner. And there was this moment where the two passions came together and I made this film and I wanted to share it with the world. I spoke to my family and they were like, do it. And that's when I put it out in the world. The sense of freedom and liberation that came from that were a hell of a lot of people who were like, oh my God, I had no idea that you'd been carrying that for so long. And so it made me understand that people are a lot kinder, a lot more understanding and a lot more empathetic sometimes we give them credit for hearing you share about your journey reminds me that um all of us have a process whatever it is we need to share about either with people close to us or publicly so yeah um, that's a good example for me the warrior starts from crawling and going up absolutely i mean i was the thing is this is that i was never ashamed of my hiv I, i never didn't tell people because i felt shamed or i would hide it I kept my HIV to myself when I could because I knew other people's reactions to it and I didn't have to deal with people's bullshit around that. There were a couple of times that that happened and I was like, I don't have to deal with this. But then taking it back, owning it, completely gave me back the power. Enabled my career and my profile to skyrocket when I came out. You mentioned clubbing, part of... The process of, at least for us as gay men, of accepting ourselves. I was able to see, when I was here last year, Black Queer Britain, the documentary by mm-hmm. Topher Campbell. And I got to watch it again now that I'm back in the UK. And you were one of the people profiled in that, where you shared about the history of Black Queer Britain, about your own journey, and then the, the pioneers that came before you. But can you share what you learned when you started to discover that there were those of us who were Black who were active members of the community, initially in your own personal sphere? That's a great question, because when I came out for the first few years, I didn't know any kind of, like, Black history. I don't know if in the UK there was a huge amount prior to the mid-1970s, you know, because we have to remember that we have been here en masse as a population group as Black folk since the 1950s, right? So... My generation and the men are a little bit older than me are first generation in this country. It's not like the US, we have a long history of, of queerness and black queerness. We're relatively new here. So in many ways, I was discovering my community, our history, at the same time as it was being made. In some ways, we were the pioneers. I know that there were clubs and there were spaces prior to when I came out, maybe 10 years before that, five years before that. But I think a lot of it really, really picked up speed as we grew in numbers, as we became more confident, as we decided that we were going to be open and out as gay men in this country. I've been on that journey and learning and developing it and building it as I've gone along. Who were some of your contemporaries at that time? My contemporaries then... Not many people that you'd know, not many people that were named. A lot of the men that I came up with were and are regular guys. 
that's one of the things that very often we think that we are, you know, names and labels. Most of the men that I knew and I hung out with or I dated or I parted with are just your ordinary Joes going around their, their daily lives who were really, really popular at one point and now kind of live nice, quiet lives somewhere with a dog and whatever in a quiet house. <laughs> one of the people is DJ BBC, you know, Calvin Dawkins was, you know, one of my closest and is my closest one of my oldest friends. And people like Dennis Carney, who I did some activism work and I got to know in the 90s. Clarence Allen, Charles Einer. But these are lots of men that were my contemporaries when I started to get involved in the HIV work. In Black Queer Britain, the documentary, uh, there were groups that came up, Big Up, Let's Rap. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they were Black Queer. Prior to those, you know, you had the Black Lisbon and Gay Centre, which was run by a, a few queer activists, Black queer activists. I didn't, get, I didn't touch those because I was not political. I didn't see myself as political or wanted to shout from the rooftops about black queer life or create a black queer space. When Let's Rap came along, which was started by Dennis Carney and Peter Nevins, I think, it was a discussion group. It was just about black gay life and connecting connecting men. And I went to my first meeting, I think it was in 1991, really reluctant to go, didn't want anything to do with it because, you know, because of my HIV experience and carried a lot of anger about that, I'm not going to lie. But when I went to places like Let's Rap, I found a community, connected people in a different way to how I had done in club spaces, less competition. We're not all looking for sex. We're not all looking to hook up. It was very different. It was communal. It was fraternal. And I think those were things which were really, really important. Let's Rap and then later Big Up came about because we needed to respond to the epidemic because nobody else was responding for us, which is when Big Up was founded in 1995. And are they still around? None of those organisations are no longer around. But what I will say is that the DNA of things like Big Up sit within the love tank today, without a shadow of a doubt. You know, when we do community events for Black queer men, we did one recently, we had like 35 black gay men under the age of 40 in a space. You know, we did one a couple of weeks ago, 30 black queer men over 50 in a space. Blackout, the DNA from Big Up is in there. UK Black Pride, the DNA from those places continue to be in there. They may not be recognised as such, but I sure as shit know the DNA from the stuff that we created lives and breathes in those spaces today. You mentioned that uh, the organizations you've been involved in, co-founded or participated in, are international. Does that mean that you are traveling outside of the UK? I mean, particularly on my HIV work, I, you know, I, I've done a lot of kind of international AIDS conferences. I've made coalitions. I was part of the Global Black Gay Men Connect movement, which started late 2019, which was a collection of black gay men from different parts of the world and the diaspora coming together to, to kind of influence and make change. So, yeah, I've been, I've been international. I've worked with partners in Atlanta, some in LA, New York, San Francisco, and the US. Yeah. What's your take on the US and how things are happening there? Our relationship with Black Gay Men to the US, is, from the UK to the US, has always been a really interesting one because for many, many years, we looked to the US for everything. We looked to the US for our writers, for our politics, for our music. I don't think we would have started Let's Rap and Big Up without 
in the life by Joseph Beam. I think if we hadn't read that as a, a seminal text at that time, we would have gone like, we're still wandering in the dark. But reading that work at that time empowered us to build. We looked over the pond and like, oh shit, they're doing it here, we, we can do it here. The difference, I think, is the numbers game. There are a lot more African-Americans than there are Black British folk. And you're spread over a much wider area. So that enables people to create more spaces, more diverse spaces, you know, which which we haven't quite got here yet. But we're on our way. I do think when I look to the US, one of the things that we have, which helps us, is we are smaller. So that enables us to connect better. And what I see in the US is that it can be quite disjointed. So I've worked with guys in Atlanta. I'm like, do you work at so-and-so in New York? And they're like, no, why would we? Yeah, I would agree. I'm just dipping my toe in a roundabout way, I think, with this platform. But I do notice here in the UK that, like you mentioned, it seems more cohesive. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. yeah, we all know each other here pretty much. I mean, for good and for ill, we all know each other here and our paths cross and they intersect with each other in lots of different ways. So that is something that helps us here. For me, as an American, I think there's a lot of great stuff here too. Maybe that's my curiosity with the diaspora outside of the US. What I'm encouraged by is that it's it's growing there are more of us coming out. There are more of us kind of looking around and going, actually, I don't walk this road alone as a gay man, as a black gay man. I have to connect with my community. And there's a real desire to connect and to build community, which I'm seeing in lots of younger men. And I'm really pleased that I'm able to mentor, shape them. They can come to me for advice. And um, yeah, I'm quite proud of that role. I kind of hold of them. To say that you are um, doing your part, in my opinion, is an understatement. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, but um, when you're not doing the work that you do, how do you unwind? How do you relax? It's changed as I've got older. I used to party a lot and used to you know, be in the clubs all the time. That was my thing to relax and switch off. Now my time is, is really quiet. You know, I spend a lot of time at home with my dog, which brings me a lot of joy. I spend time with my family which has become even more important to me now as I get older. A lot of my time is work, you know, if I'm honest. I mean, there's very little switching off if you're really committed to it, you know, because I am a black gay man living with HIV. So the work that I do impacts me. So it's really hard to kind of pull the two apart. But my relaxation time is going to the gym, lots of walking, seeing friends, you know, getting to the countryside, being in nature, reading a lot. I'm a huge movie lover. A lot of time is downtime on my sofa, just chilling back. I knew I wasn't judging the gift of getting older in my late 30s when a friend and I, we planned to go out dancing. And it was 11 o'clock. And I was like, please, please don't call. Please don't call. <laughs> and then we finally connected. And I was like, if I'm honest, I just want to sit on the sofa and have a cup of tea. He's like, same here. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, there are many Saturday nights roll around. Saturday daytime, and I'm like, yeah, it's a nice night. We're going to go out. We know where we're going. And then nine o'clock will come, and all I can think about is how loud it's going to be, and, you know, people are going to bump into me, and I don't want that to happen. And I like Sunday mornings. <laughs> I like that, too. <laughs> I'm going to use that phrase. Yeah. 
One of the things that I uh, have discovered being back and forth here in the last few years is music. The Black queer community is similar to in the U.S. We are at the center of that in a lot of ways as far as clubs or even different types of music. And I discovered grime and mm-hmm. other genres. How was that coming up and, and experiencing these genres of music that have, are influencing music today? Well, music has always been really important to me as a person, you know, regardless of my, my sexuality or my identity. You know, it was something that I grew up in my house and I have an absolute love of all kinds of music. My black queerness and music are intertwined and influences some of what I listen to and how I enjoy and receive music mm. as well. I'm a huge househead. That's the, the gay disco boy in me, which has always been there. But I'm a huge hip-hop fan as well. It brings me a lot of joy. And I also enjoy understanding how the music I listen to, the artists I listen to, kind of relates to my gayness. And I think my gayness has allowed me to be much more curious and excited. And I've listened to classical music to get my day started. But then by lunchtime, I might have some old school R&B and then come the evening, it might be a bit of Madonna. And then I might roll out a late night with a show tune and then a bit of jazz as I'm going to bed. So I listen to like all music genres and um, they really, really kind of play a huge part in my life. The emotional journey that music helps us with. Yeah, yeah. And I think for me with music, music is a, is a touchstone for me in the sense of it provides me with memory. So very often, if I'm doing a bit of writing or you know, I, I'm putting something down, music will jog something in me and will take me to a place. I can pinpoint certain parts of my life and my journey to particular artists, to their back catalog. You know, so I can pull out Pet Shop Boys, one of my favourite bands, and go, right, that happened at this time when this record came out. And I remember I was on a bus going to Bad's, the nightclub, and this is what happened when I listened to that tune. Um, discovering house music for the first time in a gay club was one of the most emotional, powerful moments of my life. I can remember the first time I really discovered good house music. If I could do it cinematically, just that roof would open up and the, the rays of sunshine would that's come. That's exactly. <laughs> I, 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 I'm there in that movie with you. Yeah. Yeah. There in that movie with you. Yeah. You know, it came up about the black. African and Caribbean influences in Brixton. Are there still places as a a visitor that one can visit here in Brixton, either for food or or art? For black stuff? Yeah, I mean, you'll find pockets of it in Brixton. We haven't been completely wiped out. I mean, I make a joke, you know, what's black on the outside and white on the inside? Brixton Market on the Saturday, you know, because you'll see all the aunties and all the grannies and their shopping trolleys buying their Jamaican food and their African bits, and, you know, girls coming from North London to buy their weave in all the shops. And you'll go in the market and there'll be white people eating, you know, champagne and expensive cheeses and burgers made out of some very, very rare vegan whatever it is. So we're still here. We're, we're still here. And I'm sure if I was a younger person going out, there would still be spaces for me to find to go to in Brixton. And I still dine out in black spaces in Brixton. And I've got friends who curate stuff in Brixton Village. You know, I throw parties in Brixton Village for, for black queer people. Mm-hmm. So there are still spaces for us, just less and less and less. But that's 
uniform across all urban spaces right now. Yeah, I saw that in New York. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we have family there. Seeing visually the shift and feeling the shift. When I visited my family in 2018 in Brooklyn and I went to a bookstore, first time I understood the, in some ways, the emotional violence of gentrification because they didn't know if I was a visitor or if yeah. I was a native. And I felt like I was being treated like I was trespassing. Yeah, I felt that so many times just walking down my road. And, and I like that phrase, emotional violence, because, and that's why I've had to make peace with it, because I cannot exist here ready to go to war with somebody, right? And very often when I saw that influx of young, middle-class, white people moving into my area and taking, literally, physically taking up space, you know, the whole joke about walking down the pavement and there's four of them in a line, all that kind of stuff. And it takes its toll on you. And it takes its toll on you not because of that, but because you see your history being wiped out. And because people aren't curious about history like they should be, things just disappear. I think the other thing to add into that is that Brixton and South London, but Brixton particularly, used to be a hub for gayness, black and white. You know, there were several clubs here. There were parties. There were radical cinema spaces. And they've all gone. All gone. So if you are a young queer person who lives in this area, you have to go out. You cannot entertain yourselves on these streets anymore. Whereas when I was coming up, I could literally fall out of my house, be in a club in 10 minutes and stumble home with a boy on my arm hours later and I'd be home in 10, 20 minutes. Now that's all gone. Thank you for bringing that up because it's similar. Yeah. Uh, West Hollywood in LA. I understand the convenience of online hookups. Yeah, yeah. But it was more than that. It was it was a social aspect. It was mm-hmm. going to the gay coffee shop or the gay bookstore or the gay clothing shop. That was part of it too, the culture. I often talk about the importance of the dance floor, right? I, I mention it a lot in interviews and when I'm talking to people that we undervalue the importance of the gay club and the dance floor because we find sanctuary, we find love, we find release in those spaces, right? So I think that's really important. But you're right about the gay coffee shop, the gay pub, the gay whatever it is, because it gives us a space to connect with each other, which isn't around sex. I mean, yes, absolutely. Those hookups do happen in those places, thank God. But they also give us an alternative and they provide us with a safe space to find out who we are, to negotiate who we want to be and who we want to be with. So... If I had a call to younger queer people is fight for your spaces, create your spaces. Acceptance is a great thing, but acceptance can sometimes lead into assimilation. And when we become assimilated, we lose all that stuff. So we want to be the good gays. I joke with my younger colleagues when I see white gay men pushing a pram in Brockwell Park. I always joke and say, I didn't fight for that. (laughs) I didn't fight for that. I fight for those men to fuck bareback in the bushes. That's what I fought for, for us to radically love each other, not have heteronormative lifestyles. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for, uh, again, welcoming to Brixton. And uh, this is my first in-person interview. So thank you so much for this experience. And I always end with asking if you have any final thoughts or insights. What you're doing is a really amazing thing is kind of connecting and looking at 
the diaspora and looking at where we are across the world, you know. And I think that that's a really important thing to recognise is that we are everywhere. You know, wherever there are black folk, there are queer folk. Very often, whilst our cultures or the circumstance we find ourselves in, or the countries which shape those circumstances will be really different, many of the struggles, the challenges that we face as individuals and as a community are shared. And I think that very often the only way for us to overcome some of those is to connect that diaspora. And that's formally through structures and through systems, but it's also informally through listening to things like this podcast. And I think that that's a really important thing for us to remember and to hold on to. And I say that because very often we can feel alone in this journey. And if we know that there's another black gay man who is somewhere else, Mm. that alone could just make us feel a little bit more whole. Speaking of connecting, where can we connect with you online? Well, people can follow me on all the socials at markt underscore one, and that's Mark with a C. Or follow The Love Tank on all of our socials, Love Tank and Prepstone. You can see all of the amazing work that we do. Thank you for spending time with us. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, comment, and subscribe. Share with your friends, too. You can also follow us on Instagram at Our Black Gay Diaspora and on Twitter at BLK Gay Diaspora. Until next time.